Hello, this is Jeremy Schwartz. Welcome to Saving Tomorrow's Planet, the podcast that speaks to people around the world taking action to save the planet. This is the start of a new series of 10 episodes, and I'm delighted that we have to start Jonathan Cove from the Philippines. He is a third-generation family working in the plastics manufacturing business, and is particularly passionate on the process of collecting, recycling, and manufacturing plastic goods from recycled plastic. You know, with each of these podcasts, what I try to do is not skim on the surface, but get to the heart of some of the technological and financial opportunities, but also barriers that we have to overcome in order to become more sustainable. And you will hear that, as always, it doesn't matter where we go in the world, they're the most unbelievably sophisticated, educated, intelligent people who have views on the planet as a total, on business, and on sustainability. And Jonathan absolutely hits that mark, and I'm therefore delighted that he should be uh, my first guest on this new series. In fact, it was so interesting that I know that uh, you know most people like to listen to a podcast for about 25 minutes. We actually spoke for over an hour. Um, but I feel that every component of what he talked about was so precious that we're going to have two episodes and spread the discussion over two episodes so that you can learn as much as I have, but do it in two bite-sized parts. I hope you enjoy this discussion. I did tremendously. And uh, I think we might start by, of course, as always, asking where Jonathan is. My name is Jonathan Koch. I'm the project head of Sentinel Upcycling Technologies based in the Philippines. We are based out of a city in Metro Manila called Malabon. Currently, right now, I'm in the lobby of the Dusitani Hotel here in Metro Manila in a city called Makati. I'm in the lobby and uh, I want to apologize if there's some audio issues. I apologize in advance because I did not have time. You know, Manila is notorious for its uh, traffic, so I didn't want to miss out on the, the schedule. So I just chose a spot here in the lobby. Don't worry. So, it's, it's actually a fantastic, <laughs> probably one of the, the best backgrounds I've done in a podcast. And so don't worry about that at all. It's it's really fantastic to see that. Great. So perhaps just uh, tell us a little bit about your education, because you've had a very interesting background, I noticed. And uh, that really informs what we're going to chat about. I'm a plastics engineer by training. I went to the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And so that's the academic part. Uh, the practical experience, my family has been in the plastic manufacturing industry for 59 years. Wow. My grandfather started in, in a one-door shop house in Chinatown here in uh, in Manila, uh, which happens to be one of the oldest, uh, if not the oldest, Chinatown in the world. Oh, wow. So he started it in 1964. And um, we grew and thankfully... We were, we were able to scale the business. I'm a third-generation steward of the business. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I always love to hear the entrepreneurial stories of people. And, and as you say, to be a third-generation, that's fantastic. And so what has been your role in the company outside of the sustainability side and the recycling? Just what, what, what's been the story there, just to give us a bit of background? Well, the, the half-joking answer is because it's a family business. You do everything that is necessary. <laughs> but my official job has been in sales and marketing. So I have uh, I have about 16 years of uh, experience 
working formally for for the company. Yeah. I am part of a the business unit called proprietary products. So our business, just as a background, yeah, we have two business units. One is we do subcontracting work. We do contract work for automotive appliances, cosmetics, beverages. The business unit that I'm part of is the proprietary product. So that would that means that we design, mass produce, and sell products commercially. Um, so I've been doing that for about 16 years. Right. So these are your products that you're manufacturing either under your own brand or you're selling directly as opposed to manufacturing on behalf of somebody else. Is that it? That's right. Yes, Great. that's right. And um, what's, just to give us a sense of the scale, either the size of the business or the, the areas, the biggest in terms of product, uh, what would that be? So our we have four product categories. Um, material handling, these are your crates, your totes, your, your, your pallets, slip sheets and the like. We have uh, packaging. So we have buckets, PET bottles, and multi-purpose containers. We have plastic furniture. So these are your monoblock chairs, school furniture, and we have specialty building materials. Yep. These are your plastic sheets, geomembranes, uh, corrugated plastic sheets, waterproof plastic boards used for construction. That's fantastic. And is this all for domestic sales or do you export to other countries as a matter of interest? Of it, I mean, most of it, I mean, 99.9% of it is uh, is for domestic consumption. We would have the odd exporter to like the micro nations along the Pacific. We yeah. would have those once in a while. But a vast majority of, of what we make is sold domestically. Great. Now, obviously, we're going to come to recycling and sustainability in a second. But actually, just for the audience um, who probably are just not aware too much of how the products you're talking about are manufactured. To be honest, I studied material science and plastics myself back in the day. It was my first degree. So, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the different manufacturing methodologies for plastics. But why don't you just describe perhaps the two or three that are the, the most used by yourselves? The most uh, used manufacturing process is what we call injection molding. Yeah. So the way I like to explain it is you have a uh, a a mold consisting of two halves and there's a void in the middle. And just like you squeeze toothpaste, in, toothpaste into that uh, cavity and that's, that's what happens with melted uh, molten plastic. And then the mold, you allow the material to, to cool and solidify inside that mold in that cavity. So the molten plastic takes the shape of the cavity and uh, you open it up and you have yourself a product. That's uh, in a nutshell, it's an uh, injection mode. And what is the type of plastic that you use or the different types of plastics that can be injection molded and that you know, meet the requirements of the products you're trying to make? We use several major types of material. We use PET, polyethylene paraphthalate, high density polyethylene, low density polyethylene, and polypropylene. Right. And now, for, um, may I just add, for the, the project that I'm doing, which is why, I, why I'm here, the Sentinel Upcycling Technologies, we are able to use sing, single-use sachet, whether single-layer or multi-layer sachets in our injection molding process to create the durable products that we are making. Great. So we're going to come on to that in a second. I, just to finish this story of how you make something you know, that's fresh or that's not been recycled, 
So you, we've got the injection mold. We've got a particular range of plastics we pump in. So tell us where those ingredients, those plastic ingredients actually come from in a non-upcycled uh, flow, as you might say, or supply chain. So traditionally, majority of our materials comes from oil. So when, when you extract oil from the ground, you refine it. And that's, uh, that's a whole different topic. Yeah, but, it is. Uh, so basically what happens is that you heat up the bunker fuel and the different types of chemicals turns into gas at different temperatures. Yeah. So you would capture the gas um, at different, different heights yeah. in, in that big cylinder that, is, that goes up a couple of stories. The material that we use is uh, a propane and uh, ethane. These are very light gases. And then what happens to that is it goes to a reactor. And imagine Lego bricks just attaching itself to each other. So the gas turns to a solid if you attach enough of those molecules together. And depending on how you, you attach those molecules together, you end up with high density or low density polyethylene and you add you add some additives to it you have a different type of uh, polymer so it's a whole different science you, you no it is a different science, science but you know i think actually you've described it in a very visual way and, and even i might have a little forgotten that actually you are through the manufacturing process you're first creating these gases that are there therefore individual gases individual molecules and then you're bringing them together and condensing them so that they create, as you said, long chains of, of these plastic or carbon molecules, which then, because they are long chain and they are, as you said, con condensed, they become this solid structure, or, or yeah, which can be then heated up, manipulated, squeezed, and allowed to cool again and create a product. And probably most of my listeners are, are actually not aware of that first stage of first creating the gas and then the way it's brought together. So no, that you've explained it very well. And as you said, it's a whole science we know. But nonetheless, that was uh, really informative to just understand how it comes from oil and then that's processed. So let's get to the heart of the matter, which is the upcycling business that you're running. And actually, before we get to that, you know, just as a person living in the Philippines and taking an interest in, in recycling and sustainability, just, you know, paint us a little bit of your personal story in that regard. You mean how I got into the upcycling? Yeah. Yes, you know, because, uh, you know, you're a young person and yeah, it'd be great just to hear why you've invested time and, and effort into this area at a personal level. Uh, well, the, the story is very personal, actually. As with the most stories, it started out in a bar. <laughs> I was, I was having, um, I was having drinks with a friend who happens to be a diver, and you know the Philippines is very famous for its yes, dive sites. Definitely. So he was he was telling me, you know, it's it's sad to see the state of some of the dive sites that we have now, where they would literally swim through uh, clouds, quote unquote, of plastic. Oh. And and it's sad because you know these are livelihood, right? A lot of these uh, dive sites are in rural places, and there's few economic opportunities as good yeah. as tourism. And so, if we start uh, if we start polluting the reason why tourists go in the first place, then you end up with an economic problem. Yeah. Right? And so, if that, we we actually had talking about the, the subcontracting business that we have. We, we actually had a project, project 
with a global uh, fast-moving consumer goods uh, company where right. they had this idea to turn their single-use packaging into furniture. And uh, we've been making furniture for, for decades. And they told us, can you, they asked us, okay, can you try? You know, if you can do it, we'll give you an order. So you know, as an engineer, our, our answer to most questions is, we will try. Yeah. So we tried it and uh, it worked. And actually, we did not think too much about it. We got the order, we got paid, we delivered. Um, and then a few years after that, another fast-moving consumer goods company came to us and said, you know, can you do the same thing, but different model? Yeah. So that became another project. Uh, and around this time, about 2014, 2015, around that time, there was a lot of a bad press that is being, that's featuring the plastic industry. Yeah, we we all know we all probably many people have seen that video of the turtle with the straw. Yeah, it's those. So there was a lot of calls to banning plastic, and um, in my mind, actually, the straw is a very durable recycled material. The straw is a very strong material, and I know for a fact that it is recyclable. Yeah, and so so the technology is not the problem. No, so the problem is. Multiple. They, I I later found out it's it's multiple layers or multiple types of problems. One is uh, people don't know. Number two, the infrastructure uh, to to collect it and to get it to companies like us who can do something about it is is weak, right? And yeah. the, the economics are not uh, favorable to source from post consumer. So just just to sidebar a little bit on that. Yeah, let's do that because this is, you know, in the end, it's, it's the, if I can just interrupt for a second, you know, one of the very interesting subjects in, in my mind is how do you collect, but the economics, if, you know, we all follow the money. So it would be great if you could just give us an illustration of that bit of the story. So um, there are uh, the traditional source of recyclable materials are what's it called post-industrial. Yeah. So these are these are factories, factory waste that that companies like us who that can make use of buy and, and make our product, right? So let's think about that for, for a minute. You know, because it is waste, it is a fire hazard, it takes up space. So the company would be very happy to be rid of it. So uh, so they would tend to sell it for a more reasonable price because they view it as waste, a fire yeah. hazard and, and all that. Now, in the Philippines, unfortunately, we have what is called the single stream waste management system. Right. So everything goes in the same bin for yeah. the most part. Mm. Right? So uh, to get people to sort is additional effort. And so, but then if you build a whole sorting facility, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. Right? And so this just, and then we are an archipelagic country. So logistics is very expensive. Uh, and uh, it just, the economics simply doesn't work with that business model. Right. So something has to be done. And so what we in Sentinel Upcycling Technologies is advocating for are several things. One is sorting at source. Yeah. yeah sort it as close to the source as possible. The second thing is recycler or manufacturer-centric waste management. And, and yep. what that means simply is these, these groups, these communities should 
approach recycle, whether paper, plastic, steel, and ask a very simple question. Like, what is your criteria for valuing your recyclables? So you pay the best price for it, yep. right? And then you create your you create your waste management chain with that in mind. And so you're sure that that the effort that you put in can be monetized at the end. And in exchange, the recycler, the manufacturer, will have another source of raw materials, which is post-consumer. Totally. Jeremy, I have to tell you, it's a lot of work because the culture is not there, but the desire is there. Yeah, the culture is not there. Yeah. And one of the things that strikes me, I'm, I'm so pleased you're talking about the economics because, you know, what I... I'm very clear on is that everything to do with sustainability is about a PL. And rather than talking about cost, which everybody obsesses around, we need to talk about the full PL because the cost could become irrelevant if the revenue and profit is there and that's economic and, and is competitive. So I'm, I'm so with you on that. One thing that just struck me as you were talking is how, and this is what you might have done, I'm interested, you know, if we all focused on what I call chunked down the problem and said, actually, if we focus on the cities, you know, there, then we don't have to transport that waste very far because we've got density of people. So let's not bother about all the islands and all the countryside, which in a volume of people is going to be low and the transport's high. Let's just focus on major city centers where the logistics, you know, can be far more uh, efficiently and probably affordably executed. And so just talk to me about that. And then we'll, because obviously the cultural element is a different story, uh, another story. Yeah. Uh, my brother coined this term. I don't know if he actually invented the term, but uh, he talked to me about, you know, what you're doing is actually urban mining. And yes. I think that oh. encapsulates a lot of the ah. thing we're trying to do, right? Because you mine for resources. Yes. Right? And and that's that's really one of the fundamental shifts that need to happen in the mindset of the people. This is a resource. But, you know, you don't just dig gold out of the ground and it's ready to be sold. No, you have to process it properly. Correct. You have to do all of these things to maximize its value. And so, so really, the key is, is getting people on board with that idea, right? First is you have to make them aware that, you know, there's some value to this. The next thing is, this is what, you're, what we would ask you to do to maximize that value. And then the third thing is, there has to be the infrastructure yeah. of haulers and all of these junk shops and recyclers, this waste management chain, it has to be in place so that, you know, in the city, it's always a crime. So if you want people to do something, you have to make it convenient for them. Yes, convenience so, so is you there. You have to make sure that doing the right thing is easy. And that is infrastructure. Okay. So in the city, you have everything ready. You have uh, the people, the consumers, you have the recyclers, you have the fallers. So what is missing? I think it's just rallying around this concept of urban mining. Yes. And filling in those gaps, whether it's competence, awareness, yes. infrastructure, or just the monetization points. Yes. But bringing it all together is necessary. And I think right. if we do that, we'll be well on our way. Well, look, I think, you know, if, if sometimes when and why I love doing these podcasts is something happens, which is so profound that you say, gosh, I'm pleased. The word urban mining is probably one of the most exciting words I've heard in a long time. Because if we think about crypto and we know that these guys are doing crypto mining, we none of us actually understand what's going on. We, you know, we get we get a sense <laughs> of it, but we understand it's highly intense and it's something secret. 
Yeah, I, and it's so interesting, this, because one of the things that struck me recently, very recently, is that humanity is mining this, the earth, and whoever get takes either oil or fish or something, they are actually getting it for free because it's stuck in the ground for free. They then spend money, as you've said, to extract it and charge somebody for something that they've actually been able to access for free simply because they own that piece of land, which is in some ways shocking that that's how the whole system works. Now, what you're saying, and I love it, is that let's apply that same thought of urban mining the house for stuff that she could be recycled. I think it's a brilliant way to get people to think differently. And I'm now going to give you a challenge, I think, which is for many years, I've been wondering how we could invent an in-home compressor for particularly cardboard, but also plastic. Because I think one of the things I notice is, you know, we create bags of rubbish, which actually is a lot of plastic. And if I could compress it within the house somehow and, and just make it smaller, I don't know, it just would make it easier to transport, it would make it uh, easier to, to collect and so on. And I, and I don't know if there was a way that together we could invent a little, either a paddle or, a, I mean, of course, when you put plastic in a microwave, you know, it makes it very much smaller. We don't necessarily want to do that because it uses lots of energy. But I think there's also some sort of invention that compresses and that would also encourage people to then... I, uh, you know, sort it, compress it, and then, you know, dis- uh, give it to the the waste people. So I leave that thought yeah, with yeah. you. Do you, you think that's a possibility that we could somehow make a compressor? We already do that. Uh, actually, Jeremy, if, if you're familiar with vacuum bags. Yes. So uh, we put all of the single-use sachets in a vacuum bag, and we take a vacuum cleaner and suck out all the air, and you save at least 50% of the volume because most of it is it's it's proven i actually have a video on that a very simple solution and it's very practical you can get a lot of these things from online shopping the bags are really cheap and vacuum cleaners are are quite reasonably priced the challenge actually with that is uh, you don't want to create more waste so the vacuum bags have to circulate right so that is more of the challenge yeah to, to, to that system. As far as uh, compressors is concerned um, or densification equipment, yeah. the, like the beer can compressors, like the aluminum beer can yes. compressors, we actually have one in the office for aluminum cans. We have one for PET bottles actually in the office. And uh, it's actually fun. People use it. They, it's a nice nice thing for them to do. Which, Great. which well, leads me to, 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 to another point where, where in waste management, you have to, especially with communities, in as much as you can make it fun yes. uh, to get option, especially the kids, I think that should be done as well. And I, after this program, I'd like to see that PET uh, compressor because that, that interests me. Now, so we, we've understood there are challenges, but we've invented or you've invented an incredible new world word. Let's assume the materials are being brought to you. What, what are you doing as a company then uh, that maybe actually sounds, from my point of view, different to almost any other company I've seen in this space? So, yeah, what, what's the next step that happens when the materials all come to you? So when we get the material, first is we have to make sure that it's properly sorted because if there's contamination, it compromises the, right. the quality of the product we have we are able to make. So we shred it and then we melt it and uh, yeah, we, we inject it. It's, it's really that simple. Uh, but of course, I wouldn't want to give away the secret sauce. No. But in general, that is what we do. 
Okay. It's no different. It's the process is really no different from any conventional injection molding process. So what what is then? You know, I, I mean, there are a couple of uh, quite famous companies in Europe and America, and there's one particular one that you know does claim to take materials and upcycle. But as I said, the, the things they seem to create just don't seem to have scalability or much practical use. And yet, when I saw the crates you've got and the chairs, I mean, these are core products that you know have got big demand. And it, it would seem, therefore, pretty obvious that you could create this circular economy with products that are useful. What's the difference then between what you might create from a recycled product in your business versus when you were taking it with the, the raw ingredients that you described so well? Um, the ideal scenario is, as far as the consumer is concerned, uh, they do not have to sacrifice any of the functionality of the product. Yeah. What we, what we, don't, what we try to avoid in, in, in our design principles when we create products is... We, we don't want the customer to sacrifice function just to gain that that environment benefit. Yeah. So I see my job as a plastics engineer to create products that are just as good uh, as if it were made from virgin. And yeah. when I say that, I have to I have to qualify that statement where, uh, of course, if it's made of virgin plastic, ultimately it is more durable, right? But what we are aiming for is not ultimate durability because usually those things will cost too much. You over-engineer your product. It's good, but it comes at a cost. Yeah. And it, it's not it's not just about it's not about the price, but about the value. So yeah. cost and, and benefit. So there needs to be a balance. So my job and my team's job is to find that balance. So a big part of our work is really recipe development and material development which is, I think, very close to your heart as a material scientist. Yeah. Because our, our, our job is to, like, making a cake, we have to figure out what recipes, what materials go into that recipe to bake, to bake the best cake possible, right? So uh, if we cannot achieve the same thing uh, using upcycled or recycled material, then we would make the product a bit thicker, we yeah. add some reinforcement here and there. But the core principle is the customer should not have to sacrifice function just because, you know, and the, it's like a consolation prize, you know? It's, yeah. Oh, it's okay that it's inferior. Anyway, it's made of recycled. I, I don't think that's the way to go forward with this.